I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. This is where we'll begin, though we'll look at a number of references this morning. But Colossians chapter 1, and while you're finding your place, it's my privilege to welcome you to church on this Lord's Day, to welcome each of you that are gathering in your homes by way of the live stream. We're glad to have you as well. And always encourage that during the busiest month of the year, perhaps the busiest week of that month, you're in God's house together with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're studying Advent this month, as David has mentioned already. The theme for today is peace. This is Colossians 1, verse 15. The one we've been singing about. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of the cross." And said more concisely, but from Romans 5, chapter 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this room, for its occupants, for the hope of heaven for the love of God, for the joy that was set before him, and for the peace, not only among men, but that passes all understanding. Lord, would you take our mind, even our imagination, and make it yours? Would you take total jurisdiction over the time we have together before our week is so busy? before we travel, before we're spread, perhaps to the four winds. Lord, redeem this time here and now. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I do believe that at some point when Advent was organized, it might have been an attempt, this is my speculation, to take what we all know and study, maybe have memorized are about as familiar with as far as Scripture as familiarity could be. The Christmas story, a manger, shepherds, wise men. But to draw out the implications of those things. And that's been our, our task over this month. We started the last week of November with the theme of hope. But we went all the way back to Genesis. And in that third chapter... 15th verse after reading of the the world's creation 
and its garden and a man and a woman and it seemed that soon after everything was done and good it all fell apart and cursed was the man, the woman, the ground, the snake death was the wage but there was hope that somehow, somewhere, someone would break that curse of sin, restore our relationship with God, and give us peace that had been traded for independence. But it's been a war ever since. Then the next week, which was a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at love, and we studied the love story between God and His people. We went deep into the prophets of the Old Testament and read about this love story that didn't sound like a love story. It sounded like a tragedy. It was awful one-sided. You've got this God who loves this people he made, but they've run off. They want nothing to do with him, but he loves them anyway and pursues them relentlessly through the ages to remind him that he wants them for himself. And then last week, we got into the New Testament and we discovered that joy was really as far as we're concerned, one stray beam of light from this glorious joy that is all our Lord's. You've heard uh, when someone gives you something, you say, thank you. And sometimes you'll hear, no, the, the pleasure's all mine. We learned last week, the joy is all his. Who for the joy that was set before him endured a cross, despising all the shame, is now sat down at the, the throne, the right hand of the throne of God, we uh, learned about all this in the second chapter of Philippians. After this, this one who humbled himself to obedience to the death of a cross has been given a name among all names. Every knee bows and every tongue confesses. So all that is, is we've, we've charted our way through the scriptures today. We, we go to the book of Revelation. So that's the next address. I'd like to invite you to steer your GPS the book of Revelation, either turn there or scroll there. You may want to make sure that uh, that automatic voice that wants to read it sometimes is silenced. It has shown up a few times this month. That really doesn't bother me, that the, the phones, the, the electronic distractions in our pocket would actually speak the living words of God. But we want to make sure we f focus now, peace is our topic. Revelation chapter 4 is where we'll be looking. I'll read some of that in a moment. But I want to, I suppose by way of, of setting the scaffold from which to work. There's a philosopher, a pagan, a Stoic as he was known, a, a, a contemporary of Paul the Apostle. Uh, his name, Epictetus. Most Roman names sound weird. His does too. But he was known for his writing and his thinking. And he wrote about peace. Uh, peace that existed during the time of Christ. It was known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The temple doors to the temple of Janus, the war of God, were closed during this time because no active war was going on. But it was this man that said, crediting Caesar Augustus, we know from the Christmas story, with the Pax Romana. He said, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give us peace 
from passion, greed, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns. This man says poetically what every man who's aware already knows and understands. There's peace on the outside, but there's also peace on the inside. And though we may live in a generation, mine here knows nothing of war, though generations before me know lots about war. Everyone since the Garden of Eden has known about war on the inside. So we're going to need something a little more than even a Pax Romana. We're going to need more than an emperor, more than a president, more than a military to end the, fo- the strife and the warfare. And the question is, can this God who gave us hope at the outset of our failure, who demonstrated his love toward us while we were in our sins, who endured the punishment for our sin, but the joy set before him, can he save us from our inner war? Can he give us peace, lasting peace? Now, before I read this passage in Revelation, and this, I think, is the first time we've studied from the book of Revelation on a Sunday. Revelation's different than the other books, isn't it? The Gospels are pretty straightforward. They're each from a unique perspective. One and I witness each of them, or gathering eyewitness accounts from others. But it's a story, a narrative. We get what they're saying. Real time, real people, real events. Then you get to Acts, it's much the same, it's a book of history. The epistles, that's how we should live. It's prescriptive doctrine, this is how you should live. You get to Revelation, and it's largely imaginative themes, metaphors, describing one thing by use of, a, of, of the image of another. And if we're not careful, uh, we may assign to these things Things that it wasn't meant to say. So that's kind of my, uh, not a disclaimer, but let's just make sure we know what we're about to read. Imagination is something God gave us, right? And it's very helpful because it's the one thing that helps us see past today into tomorrow. None of us have been into the future We have reference points for what we can expect because of our past, and then we have our judgment right here in the the present. But as to the future, it's called speculation, isn't it? There's a couple in this church who expect to be married by spring. Those of us that know what it was like before we were married knows that that was an awful lot of speculation. Because we had no reference point for what it is to be married But thank the Lord he gave us an imagination too with hope of love, joy, perhaps peace as well. But peace is the one thing out of these all that we haven't been able to wrap our fingers around and if we have, it's been temporary. We may need more imagination for this thing called peace than we would for joy or for love or even for hope. And this is what Revelation has in excess. You get through the first chapters and you really get into what appears to be uh, a song, as it were, in uh, four movements or so from chapters 
4, 5, 6, and 7, which we'll concern ourselves with today. But let me read to you at least from the fourth chapter. It's not very long. We'll read through the whole thing. But if ever there was someone who told you not to use your imagination, if you were the kid that got caught staring out the window instead of focusing on the blackboard, that was me. But I'm sure there's some of you as well. You'll need your imagination today. God gave it to you. These are imaginative terms. Use it. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, let's hope we hear from not John, the author, humanly, but the Holy Spirit, the author, spiritually. He says, this is John from John's Gospel, author of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now this is the first movement, the fifth chapter, if you're familiar with these things. The focus from God as creator shifts to God as redeemer. And the vision of a lamb that was slain is introduced. Chapter 6, this lamb opens seals of judgment, which really initiates the end, but only of the beginning. And then in chapter 7, an innumerable multitude that no one can count stands before the throne from every nation, tribe, and tongue in the presence of God and in perfect peace. So how do we get from here to there. Well, without taking too much time to study our way with boundaries and guide rails for what to do with 
a passage like this. Let's just take a look through that door. Consider this a door. Uh, if you like C.S. Lewis, he had a good time with things like this. He liked to write about other worlds that could be accessed through a door in the back of a wardrobe. This is indeed another world, as real as this one we live in now. John's vision gives us a door to see from this world into that world. And what we're going to do is take these metaphors and align them with other places in Scripture that we know of, places that don't come from this type of language, but from real events, real places, as the story unfolded in this world, and see how they relate to things that are in this world we're looking at through this door. And one note on metaphors. You you know what a metaphor is. One thing is used to describe the nature of another. We're going to read about both a lion and a lamb in this passage. Is a lion a lamb? No, a lion is a lion and a lamb is a lamb. But both of these represent Jesus, right? So it's not just a code. When we read lion, that's Jesus. When we read lamb, that's Jesus. No, when we read lion, we're given indication of how this Jesus is, how he acts, who he is. He's like a lion in some ways, but at the same time, he's like a lamb. You may have people tell you that certain characteristics of yourself seem contradictory, but that's who you are. You're, you're different ways at different times. Same as Jesus. So let's start with the description of this place. One of the first things that's mentioned is this throne, and it happens to be the object of all four of these chapters, and specifically a throne that is occupied by a person. Not much is said at the beginning as to the person, but that it is occupied by a person. And that's, that's good. That's enough there. We could park for a while because I'm afraid that our culture takes more of its theology from Star Wars than it does its Bible. We like to think of God as some type of force that we can use and manipulate. You sit under the preaching of some, you'll think that that's what this is for. It's some type of... Uh, Self-help manual to get the most out of this thing called life. It's not that at all. This is a story about a, a throne which you will either bow to or not. And you're bowing not to a force but to a person, the person who made you in his likeness. So we're reading about a throne. We're reading about a person. And then around this throne a rainbow with the appearance of an emerald. I hope you're using your imagination. Did you think it's strange that this rainbow's mostly green? An emerald's green, isn't it? What else is green? Plants are green. Gardens are green. You know, they say that green is the most pleasant of all colors optically. It's not far from blue. That's the color of the sky, but the color of a garden is green. That's where we were created to live, and this rainbow is green. But what else does a rainbow make you think of if you're thinking about your Bible? Noah, a flood, a rainbow in the sky, and the purpose of that was to set a limit on the wrath of God. He promised he'll never destroy the world like that again. So the way this throne, which is 
The government of God, isn't that what a throne is? A throne is authority from which to rule. The government of God is gracious. That rainbow in the Old Testament was a picture of God's grace. He could have, without marring his justice and righteousness, wiped it all away, but he didn't. There was a a glimmer of grace, and it's green. Now, if we're talking about thrones, do you know of any other thrones that have no grace at all? Think of the thrones throughout history. Not all thrones have grace. Certainly in the position of absolute power, they may start gracious, but as they gather power to themselves, that grace seems to evaporate. Power can be some of the cruelest thing on the planet. So already this throne is looking a lot different than the thrones we're familiar with. Then there are other thrones around the the big throne, 24 of them. And on those 24 thrones, there are elders. you remember that? Now, we don't know who the elders are. Pick up some commentaries. There's plenty of people who will tell you what they think they are. There's 24 of them. That'd be just conveniently enough for 12 tribes, 12 sons of Jacob, and 12 apostles. Is that what it is? Could be. We don't know why, because it doesn't tell us. But it does tell us one thing. It tells us they're elders. Any of you ever been told to respect your elder? What does that mean? Are they older or younger than you? Older than you. So it's a term of comparative age, which means there's no comparison with these elders and the God on the throne because he's forever. There's no age to compare him with them. So they're creatures. Maybe like us. They are elders, so they know more than us. But what this, it's not complicated. It seems there's a central authority, that's the throne, and then 24 other thrones where authority is, is delegated, which tells us something else about this throne. It believes in delegation. It's different than other governments that pull power to themselves, this spreads power from itself. We talked about this before, how that uh, the moment you're handed your child in the delivery room and it dawns on you that this new living creature is your responsibility, then, then life is different. The God of the universe has given you an, a living creature in his image and you're expected to bring it up. That's delegated authority. I don't know if that sounds amazing to you, but from the garden uh, to now, uh, name the animals, be fruitful and multiply, Uh, have dominion over the fish and the birds. We do that, don't we? We even call it a sport, hunting and fishing. We farm, we grow, we run businesses, we run empires. This God lets us do that. And in his government, we we see it right there. Are other governments like this, do they care to include you? Does it bring them joy to put you to work? We talked about ant farms before. You put them all in a box and watch them do their thing. 
This is a lot different than an ant farm. These are made in his image. Then there are seven torches burning with fire. And we see fire in the scriptures. It can be a boundary. There was a flaming sword at the edge of the garden. Stay out. You've broken my commandment. Fire on top of the mountain. Fire in a burning bush. But torches also carry the idea of illumination. There are seven torches. They're said to be the seven spirits of God. We're not told what that means specifically. But I think it's safe to say that this throne rules by the light of day. It's another thing we learn about this government of God. Do all governments on earth rule in the light of day? Or are there governments of darkness where they keep to themselves what they really want to do? Do we think of the word transparency as a joke when we hear some politician who wants our vote? Even the companies we work for, do we believe in transparency? As children in the home, do we believe in parental transparency? No, we keep things to ourselves. This is maybe the most different of them all. Jesus speaking chapter 15 of John to his disciples before his arrest. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Imagine that. That everything that the father told his son Jesus was passed right along to sinful men such that there is no secret as to the agenda of the government of God. That it's all black and white, clear as crystal, not only what he's done, but what he expects of us. That if you sin, you will die. And not only that, but I'll die in your place, but you must repent and believe. It's all there. True, transparent government does exist through a door and a vision, the book of Revelation. And then there's this sea of glass. That might be my most favorite. I like the sea. And I like it to be glassy. Especially if my mode of transportation is a 12-foot plastic boat. The sea is always pictured in Scripture as chaos, uncertainty, danger that cannot be controlled. All through Israel's poetry, they speak of the sea as this warring menace. It's never settled. They talk about the wicked being like the sea. Uh, it's all through the Psalms. But this throne has a sea before it that is described as calm as glass. I don't know if this brings to your mind the story of Peter on a small body of water that went wrong quickly and he's invited to walk out on the water and he's able to until he loses his mind momentarily. Physics take over. He begins to sink. But this one who can calm the sea, walk on the sea, enables him to walk on the sea. Now if... In the scriptures, the sea and its, its 
its uncertainty, its, its danger is descriptive of the opposite of peace. Think about that. Use your imagination. It's been a couple of years unlike any other. Which has added a layer on top of life that's already hard. Something that has amounted to a a distance between us that I don't know we've ever known. I don't know what's represented here in these pews, but I know of people in these pews whose lives are raging. Maybe it's in their head, maybe it's in their heart, maybe it's their loved one, maybe it's just the decomposition of the natural world in our bodies. It's cancer. Or it's disease. But I feel like a large portion of, of, of our population, maybe even within our church body, are tempted to think that there's nothing that can be done to calm the storm. That's why the sea in front of this throne is glass. That's what it means. Then there are four living creatures. And if you're one to sketch out or draw your thoughts when you're imagining things, this would be quite a picture, wouldn't it? Who are these creatures? Again, we can't tell. But we know what they are. They're living creatures. It seems that the Bible goes to pains to use that word living over and over again. And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Uh, In Hebrews, the word of God is quick, living, powerful, like a two-edged sword. Uh, Living creatures. Over and over and over again, this government is a government of life. Not some dried up shell of a regime that's trying to hang on to whatever it can hang on to. This vibrates with life. All things were made through him, John tells us in his gospel. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And life was the light of men. And life is still the grand mystery of science Our science enables us to see the actual code of life, yet we would rather, in the face of its complexity, assume it to be an accident, which is intellectual suicide. Life comes from other life. Law of biogenesis. We have it because he gave it to us. Surrounding this throne is life. So what do these creatures, these living creatures say? If we follow on, day and night they never cease to say, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And here we have the moral component. These couldn't be bigger themes. You couldn't invent a grander story. I'm going to read something from someone here in a moment who was completely flabbergasted that anyone would ever think that this story, among all stories, is a boring story. But here's the moral component. 
Here we have the very dynamics of the universe laid out. This throne is the definition of what it means to be holy. This is the moral ruler, not just for this throne room, but for all of created existence. Everyone is measured by this throne. This throne is holy. We are not. God is not only the source, but the standard of what is moral. And as such, along with the 24 elders, these creatures, living creatures, say that this throne is worthy of glory, honor, and power, and then gives us the reason why. Because this God created all things, and for by its will they exist and were created. We could get wonderfully or... um, depending on whether or not you like the philosophical. It makes your head hurt or doesn't. But any of you ever go to the first class, philosophy, first day of class, and the professor, like they pretty much all do, tried to see if you could convince him that you existed? But we do exist because we're here, Right? But that's a a grand philosophical question. Why is there something here instead of nothing being here? Why are we? Why is there anything? Why are you here? Now, is that important to you as a human being? Do you think it it is uh, necessary to grow up normal, have a happy life, to have a sense of belonging? there's a reason why you exist that you're important to someone else that you matter is isn't that what makes the first day of class especially in kindergarten a scary situation what if they don't like you or or or, uh jim maybe you don't get picked maybe you get picked last or asking someone out on a date or lord help us all to promise for better, for worse, to another human being and hope that they never decide they don't want us anymore. Do you know why you're here? You just read why you're here. For by your will they exist and were created. You exist because this government wanted you to exist. I don't know if that gives you a sense of belonging. You you might, would rather you fit in inside some inner ring of other jerks who force everyone else out, but to know that the throne of God's government wanted you to be. Tells us a lot about the value of this throne. Every throne has its values. in, 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 In our situation, capitalistic as we are, we're more valuable by what we can spend than perhaps anything else. But then as we move into the next chapter, and I'm not reading all of this, we'll read portions, but in addition to all these things, a sea of glass, living creatures, rainbows, there's a scroll and a lamb There's a scroll in the hand of the one seated on the throne. Opening the scroll will initiate hell on earth. We're told John is weeping. 
And we're told why. He's weeping because there's none worthy to open the seals, to release judgment, which is kind of perplexing, isn't it? Wouldn't you rather leave that scroll closed? If it's hell on earth, why would we open it? By all means, keep it closed. But it seems John is weeping here at the prospect of the implications of leaving it closed. No judgment, no justice, no justice, no peace. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way, but this God sweeps nothing under the rug. The penalty for sin has been paid, but there are those who will reject that offer of grace. That must be punished. So he's contemplating a justiceless government, but that would not be God's government. So they're told, John is, don't weep. The Lion of Judah, who has conquered, is worthy to open those seals and to finish judgment and settle all accounts. And then, even more perplexing than anything thus far, John turns not to see the lion, but to see a lamb as though it were slain. Now you think about, uh, not what I expected. Judgment from a conqueror. But it's a wounded lamb. If it had been slain, it wouldn't be standing, but it's standing. And here, verse 6 Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, they sang a new song. I kind of ruined a passage last week about the angels speaking to the shepherds who said instead of sang. We're going to sing that song, right? Hark the herald angels said... No. Hark the herald angels sing. You get rhymes with king. Said rhymes with maybe Jesus' bed. Have to rewrite the song. It would ruin it, wouldn't it? But this is a song we know they're singing. And what are they singing about? They sing, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, I don't know if you can fit this into the words we've been given or if it requires another step of the imagination. But why is this... Lamb worthy to unleash hell? Because only this lamb knows its fury. I want to read to you. This was from Dorothy Sayers. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Contemporary of C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton. She wrote fiction. Some of the things she said were very upsetting such that they didn't put them in the papers. Here's what she said about God. Fits with what we're reading She says, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He, God, had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. 
Whatever game he's playing with his creation, he's kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it was worthwhile. What she's saying is correct. The one who's about to pour out hell on earth knows what it tastes like because the first dose was on his shoulders in full force from his Father in heaven. So what they're singing about is a worthiness to operate the moral government of God by qualification not only of his death, but by his death, his repurchasing, that's redeeming, buying you and me back from the curse of sin. He's the one qualified to judge the earth and no other. Verse 9 of chapter 7, we're moving quickly. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is what Paul was telling us in Philippians. Given a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and tongue confess. How is it that this multitude bows? Well, look what they get. They shall hunger no more, verse 16, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorched heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. The Lamb has become the shepherd. But that's only after the shepherd became a lamb. Just think about that. The shepherd became a lamb to become the good shepherd, the only shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. Folks, no one offers you what Jesus offers you. There's no religion like this. This one stands so unique among all the others. It has no precedent. This God left his throne, came down to where you are, took your sin on himself, died your death, gave you his peace with his father. This God, your hope, who loves you, considered it joy to pursue you, to give you peace, also knows the meaning of your tears. Look at the last part, best for last. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The eye is the most sensitive organ in the body. That's why you usually wipe away your own tears. If anyone else gets... A chance, maybe it's mommy. She'll take care of them. Usually tears come in where words fail, don't they? Sometimes we don't even attempt to describe what's behind them because we know that there's likely not another human being that could know what's there. 
But this passage tells us that your last tears will be wiped away by the governor of God's government personally. Because he's the only one who knows their meaning. We started talking about peace on earth. This is peace inside. You'll need an imagination for this. But this is scripture. This is the future. This is almost too wonderful to be true. But from the lips of Jesus himself, John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. They know nothing of this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Do you know this throne? Do you know this shepherd? Just because these things are true doesn't mean that you belong to him. You must bow before a throne. You must repent of your sin against it. But then you'll find that he's so ready to forgive you. Namely because of the extent to which he went to pay it off. Such that we read this at the end of the book, but that's really the beginning, isn't it? The beginning of eternity, no more tears, like the baby shampoo. No more tears. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for imagination. We thank you for a door into another world. Lord, would you give us what's necessary to speak of this door such that others' curiosity drives them to answer questions we all live with. Lord, would you give us a sense of belonging? Would you give us a sense of hope? Would you give us love to give away? Joy to enjoy with others? Knowing that this isn't all there is. Peace, lasting peace. A sea of glass. It's just around the corner. Lord, we thank you for these themes. We thank you for truth. We thank you for one another. And we thank you for a space of time in which to imagine. I ask all this in your precious name. Amen.